on our Facebook group uh, to cover that time because there's just too much good stuff in Genesis 15 today. So if you want to check that out, you can check that out. And let's uh, open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just come to you longing to hear your voice. Longing to hear you through your word. God, today as we open your word, we just pray that you speak to us. We know that you've given us your very word so that we know how to live a life of godliness. So help us to come to it today with a humble heart, hoping to be changed. God, speak through your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we head into Genesis 15, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever struggled with doubt? Have there ever been times in your life where you know God's promises and yet the circumstances in your life cause you to stop and go, God, how are you going to come through? God, I believe you, I believe in your promises, but when I look at my life, it just doesn't seem like things are working out the way that I thought they would. We fast forward approximately 10 years from what happened last week. If you remember last week, God promised to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. In this ten, in these approximately 10 years, we don't know the exact amount of time, but in this time that has passed, Sarai is still not pregnant. Most likely they've been married maybe 65 years, and yet still no baby. And Abram's wondering, okay, God promised that he was going to do this through me, make me a great nation. And so in Genesis 12, coming out of this promise, we see Abram travel down to Egypt because of a famine. And we don't know, is that because he, was being, he was, wasn't trusting God's provision there in Canaan? Or if that was how God directed him? But he heads down to Egypt, and that's the whole scenario where he relies about Sarai and says this is his sister and not his wife. But in the midst of that line, God still blesses Abram. Head back to Canaan, and God blessed Abram so much that Abram and Lot can't can't stay together in the same place, so he tells Lot, you know, you pick where you want to go, and Lot heads this way, and God gives Abram what he wants to give him and blesses him. And then there's these four kings from the from the north that, that uh, the, the kingdoms in that area had been paying taxes to. They decide we're not going to pay taxes anymore, and these four kings come through and conquer these five kings, and then they take Lot with them. So Abram gets 318 men, and they trained men, and they go and they recover Lot, and they recover the possessions, and they head back to their home. And so it says in Genesis 15:1 after this, so this is just after Abram has had a victorious military conquest and, and he's offered a tithe to Melchizedek, which is a really interesting thing. And you can watch the video if you want to know more about that because there's a lot there. But And then the, the king of Sodom asks, offers all this stuff to Abraham. Abram refuses. And then it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Before we, we talk about this, I want to point out something really interesting. Don't you ever wish that God would just talk to you, you know, just say something really specific? And I've often thought, man, I wish I was Abraham, where God clearly, concisely came and, and spoke directly to me. But when we look at the life, I want you to think about something. 
Abraham, if he was called when sometime when he was in Ur, but we have the recording when he was 75, he left Haran to go to Canaan. He died when he was 175. What that means is in about 100 years, we have eight recorded encounters between Abraham and God, where God talked to Abraham. So in 100 years, God, Abraham had a chance to talk to God eight times. Sometimes there were decades between, and sometimes he walked away maybe even a little more confused than when he talked to God. And we look back and we say, I wish God would talk directly to us, but I wonder if Abraham would say, you know what, I would love to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in me, guiding me each and every day. You know, I would love to have God's very words written down so I know exactly what it looks like to follow them, so I have God's word directly. So when we open this book, we have something unique. See, we can hear God talk directly to us through his word every single day. So when we look back at the life of Abraham, it's, it's easy for us to go, man, I wish God would talk directly to me in a specific way. But what we forget is that God does have his very word direct to us that we have access to every day and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us. So with that said, it is really cool that Abraham gets these visions from God. So verse 1 of Genesis 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. You're a very great reward. If you're kind of new to the Bible, Abram and Abraham, they're the same person. Uh, God later names him Abraham. But I find it interesting that the first thing God says here is after this happened, he says, do not be afraid. Abram had just had this military conquest, but there's got to be a part in the back of his head where he goes, they'll be back. You know, they had, they had swept through and taken over these five kings, and, but they had probably lost some people along the way in that battle, and now he routes them, and he's got to be thinking, okay, now they're mad at me too. They'll be back. Maybe there's some fear that settled in. You know, Abraham refused to accept the, the, the gift that Sodom had asked to give him, and that would have been a, uh, the right thing to do in that time to kind of create this peace alignment, but, but Abraham refused that. And, and so maybe there's a little bit of sense where Abraham goes, what if they come back? And so Jesus says, don't be, or, uh, God says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I'm your protector. I'm your shield. And you know how you refuse that reward from Sodom? I am your reward. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. And I think a lot of times that we, we look at the circumstances in our life and we don't realize that the greatest reward we can have is a relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus, God said here through, uh, to Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. We spend so much time looking and searching for rewards and we have to take this word seriously that God says, I am your very great reward. In verse 2, it continues, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is the first time that Genesis records Abram speaking back to God. And it's potentially been about ten years since God's given him this promise of descendants and still no kids. 60 years, 65 years of marriage, no kids. It was in that time, that was how you really showed if you were really blessed by God, you'd have a lot of kids and yet no kids. And so one of the things they would do in that culture is they would, they would take a, a servant and they would treat the servant kind of like their son. And when they passed away, they would pass on their possessions and their name to the servant. So at some point he's taken on Eleazar of Damascus as his servant. And he's saying, look, I don't have a son. 
So now I'm going to have to pass all my possessions along to, to Eleazar. And so God responds. Now you may think God is going to kind of respond harshly because it sounds a little bit like Abraham is doubting. But the, the scriptures don't say anything about this being counted as doubting. He's trying to clarify, okay, how are you going to do this? Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offering be, offspring be. So three times already God has promised a multitude of descendants. And what he does here is clarify. Skip Heitzig, one of the pastors I listened to, said what God does in the stories, he repeats he clarifies and he expands. He repeats, he clarifies, and he expands. So he repeats the promise that he'd already given. Here he clarifies it. It's going to be of your own flesh and blood. And he expands it. Look up at the stars. And when we look at God's word, what we often have to do is, is to look back at God's promises and, and repeat them to ourselves. And when we're following God, what God often does is he clarifies. So... When I went to college when I was 18 years old, I thought I was going to go to college for four years, maybe four and a half, you know, and then go be a missionary. And I thought I'll be in full-time ministry, you know, quicker than that. Well, I finally got into full-time ministry at 28. I still wasn't done with college until 29. And during that time, I sold cars, I sold knives, I worked for a handyman company when I'm not handy, and I worked in fast food. Was it really the map I would have set out? But during that time, I saw God continue to repeat his promises. And as I served him and, and sought him out, I saw him clarify how he wanted me to, to fill that out and eventually expand them. But I, I love that God takes Abraham and says to him, look at the stars. You know, I, I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in looking at all of the obstacles in our life, all the struggles that we have. And sometimes we need to stop and look at the stars and recognize the God who created everything is the one who communicates to us through his word. We stop and we, we look at the stars. It causes us to, to take our eyes off the things, the, the struggles that we have and focus on God. And he said, look at these stars and, and you look at the stars and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And I imagine Abraham looking up at the stars and going, that's, that's a lot. God, right now I'm just asked for one. <laughs> I want one. But it says this really important thing. This might be the most important verse in the Old Testament. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Believed is there in the, in the Hebrew is the same root word as the word amen, which means it is so. So Abraham, Abram is saying, it is so. I, I believe. I believe you, God. And why I say this might be the most important verse in the Old Testament is because we see that people have always been saved by faith. If you go back to Hebrews 11, and, which we looked at last week, and, and we see that by faith, Abel. So right at, the, right at the beginning, Cain and Abel, you know, Adam and Eve's sons, by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. 
By faith he was commanded as righteous, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. He continues in verse 5 about Enoch. Enoch. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. We see by faith, by faith, by faith. Salvation has always come by faith and not by works. Well, this theme is picked up in the New Testament, and Genesis 15, 6 is quoted in three different passages. In Romans 4, it's quoted three times, and the Greek equivalent of credited is used 11 times. Now, we're not going to read all of Romans 4 because we're actually going to look at it in a couple weeks. But in verse 1 of Romans 4, Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then Paul goes on to use David's writings and Psalms as a proof that righteousness was not from works because of the mistakes that David made. He then talks about circumcision, the law, and faith, and we'll look at those in a couple weeks, but he continues in verse 18. Without weakening in his faith, faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he promised. This is why... It was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What Paul is saying is, look, this phrase, he believed and it was credited to him for righteousness, was written for us so that we can know That through Jesus and through faith in Jesus, that we can be delivered from death, you know, for the wages of sin is death. And we can be raised to life for justification. Justification just means it's just as if I'd never sinned. God declares us righteous and we are no longer, our sins are no longer held on our account. Galatians 3 quotes it and says, So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to his righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance of Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All throughout Scripture we see it's faith. We're saved by faith. But I want to point something out here. What is faith? What is it? There are a lot of people in this world that believe in God and maybe even believe in Jesus, but it has no effect on their life. 
they intellectually say, yeah, I believe in God. They intellectually say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But they never surrendered their life to God. See, faith in God is something that is, it's more than just intellectually agreeing with a set of principles. Your Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord meaning Savior, Lord meaning the person I'm going to follow, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so James, when he looks at this idea of, of faith, he says in James 2, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. And so there's been a lot of arguing about what is James saying. What James is truly saying is that real faith acts. Real faith does something. It's not that we're saved by our works or that we have to do something to earn our salvation. What it is, if if we have true faith in Jesus, we have true faith in God, then that should cause us to act. And it says that that faith was credited, or maybe your translation says counted, or reckoned, or imputed. Von Rad said, but above all, his righteousness is not the result of any accomplishments, whether sacrifice or act of obedience, rather as stated programmatically, that belief alone has brought Abraham into a proper relationship with God. You know, maybe you have a debit card. If you throw up that. So in your debit card, you know, every time you go to the store, you get a charge, it shows up on your account as a debit. It's, it's a minus. And then if you get a paycheck or you make a deposit, it shows up as a credit, as a plus. I'm going to tell you guys, I'm gonna, I, I want to be transparent up here. Sometimes I'm a bad husband. So this yesterday, my wife was doing something wonderful for me. And so we, we got done visiting uh, one of the church members at the hospital. And while I was in there, we had taken the kids. She, she looked up online, you know, gluten-free places and found a bakery that has gluten-free stuff. And I'm sorry, honey, but I'm going to tell on myself here. And so she's really excited. So we get in the car afterwards, and, and she's like, I got a surprise for you. I'm like, okay, sweet. I like surprises, you know. And, uh, and she's like, and my kids are, are there, and Car's like talking about it. I'm like, no, Car, don't ruin the surprise. Don't tell me what it is. And Car goes, it's not a bakery, of course. <laughs> of course it was a bakery. So we show up at the a bakery, and my wife is being really sweet, and we walk in, and they have a gluten-free, like a whole section, right? I get there. What is with the prices of gluten-free stuff? It's ridiculous. So, so for my whole marriage, my taste buds have been tied to my wallet. So if something is cheap, it tastes good. And if it's expensive, it tastes bad. <laughs> so we get there. And it's like, it's like $3.45 for a cookie. And like $3.30 for a muffin and, and like something for... And so I immediately, like, I see the prices and my face drops and I get sad. And then now my wife feels horrible because she's... Try and do something really sweet for me, you know, find a place where they have desserts that I can eat. And, and so I, I just, I, and then I had to apologize when we got back because I, I didn't want to buy anything. Once I saw, I didn't want to spend three bucks for a cookie. I'm cheap. And so, but my wife is doing this really thoughtful thing for me. And so I, I got, a, I got a muffin and it was delicious. It was really good. And we went back and I just had to apologize because I said, you know what? You had the best intentions and I'm a jerk and I'm sorry. 
But, you know, but still, there's, you know, when that statement comes in and I see $3 and whatever for a muffin, I'm going to cringe a little bit because that's a, that's a, a, a debit that comes off. And, and so sometimes we, we live our lives and there's all these debits and then, and then we, we hope that at the end of the month we, we get the credit, you know, we, 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 we have our, our paycheck and we hope the credit is more than what the debit is so we end up balanced at the end of the month. Well, I think sometimes in our culture we do kind of the same thing with our spirituality and, and we, uh, we look at the credit and some things like this show up. You say, well, I'm, I'm a good person, right? You know, I attend, I attend church, you know, I, I, I pray, you know, usually it's only when like I need something, but I, I pray occasionally, you know, I, I don't cheat on my taxes, you know, I try to follow the golden rule, you know, treat other people the way I want to be treated, I, I haven't killed anyone, I'm not Hitler, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm more moral than my friends, you know, when I look at my friends, you know, I, I'm kind of more moral, and we look at all the good things, and, and sometimes we try to downplay the debit, you know, but, but maybe there's some things on the debit we don't think about. You know, things like selfishness or, or envy or, or realizing that I'm putting others before God or I expressed anger in an unhealthy way. And we look at these things and we try to try to add up, you know, OK, there's there's here's the things I've done well and here's the things I've done poorly. And so so maybe I'll get to heaven because I've been a pretty good person. And if you go to the next slide, what what we realize is that none of those things count. All of our sins count against us. You know, Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. And it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that God is perfect and holy and just. And because he's perfect, holy and just, we can't do enough good things to, to get enough credit to cancel out the debt. Because any one sin, if we sin one time, then we don't deserve to get to heaven because we have a holy and righteous God. And so that creates the problem then. So what it says in here, if you go to the next slide, that Abraham believed... And it was credited to him as righteousness. See, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what happens is that Jesus, that faith, is credited to us on account of what Jesus did. If you have a credit card, what do you do? You, you charge things all month, and at the end of the month, the, the bill is due. Well, the bill came due, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for that bill. He, we, we, we charged it, and, and he came, and he said, okay, your faith... I'm now crediting to you as righteousness because we are saved because God, through Jesus Christ, Jesus was completely righteous, completely holy, and he came to this earth and he died in our place so that we can have life. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I'm so thankful because I know my, my debit is large. But I'm thankful that I serve a God who... When I put my faith and trust in him, he credited that as righteousness. He, he came in. And, and so when the righteous judge judges us at the end of our life, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will say, I knew you. I've adopted you into my family. You're my own. Whereas if we don't do that, he'll say something really simple. I never knew you. So it's so important for us to realize that our faith is what saves us. Through Christ's blood on the cross. Verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to the Chal- of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Amos said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Here God starts saying this thing they'll say all throughout the Old Testament. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. You'll hear it all throughout the Exodus story. I am the Lord who brought you out of 
Egypt. So when we look at this, the question becomes for Abraham, okay, you're going to give me the land. I believe you're going to give me the land, but how? I've looked around, and there's people here, right? There's, there's cities, and, and the cities each have people, and, and you're going to give me the land, but there's people here. How does that all work? So, verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these, sorry, Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. You might be like, what in the world? <laughs> right? Well, in those days, uh, there was a ritual that they would do to create a covenant. And typically, it was usually between a king who had conquered a land or two people that were coming to an arrangement. And so what they would do, it was very symbolic. They would cut the, the animals in two, and they put one half on this side and one half on that side. And both parties would walk through the middle. And essentially, what it was saying is, if you break this covenant, you're going to end up like these animals. And often, it would be a king, when he had conquered a, 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 a city would have the person who he conquered, and instead of them both walking through and making a covenant that if, if one of us breaks this, then we'll, we'll, you know, you'll reap the consequences, the king would make the subservient person who was conquered walk through there, basically saying, if you break this covenant, I'm going to come and kill you. Let's go back to that in a second. Uh, and then many people in verse 11, the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. They, they, the commentators all said that's kind of symbolic of how the Israelites were going to go through these trials. Um, sounds like a good answer. And the symbolism, I, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I think that's probably the right case. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over for him, over him. I find it interesting that God's timing is never our timing. You know, this, it would have taken time to, to, to arrange these animals the correct way, to carve them the correct way. Abraham would have been familiar with it, so he probably would have started early in the morning. And then he waits. And he's waiting, and the, 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 the vultures are hovering and trying to get the, the dead carcasses, and he's waiting for the Lord. Sometimes God calls us to wait. He's waiting so long that he gets tired and he falls into a deep sleep. And it says this thick and dreadful darkness came over him. That, that same darkness was when God established the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai in Exodus 19. There was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. And in, when Jesus died, it said from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. So we see this presence. So in verse 13, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years their descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet received its full measure. So God answers the early question, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So God says, look, this is what's going to happen. Your, your people in the future are going to be taken captive, and we know that happened in Egypt. 
And then they're going to come back and receive the land. So God is promising to Abraham that he's going to fulfill it, but not even during his lifetime. You know, we, 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 we introduced this new song uh, for this month, This We Know, and, and, and one of the phrases, the bridge, is we trust you. Jesus, we trust you. Your ways are higher than our own. Sometimes we don't see the big picture. Sometimes we don't know all the moving parts. We don't know how God is going to work. And God here is promising a great nation, but it's going to come later, in fact, significantly later than Abraham's life. We live in an instant society where we want God to work on our timing. You know, I'm hungry. I can stop at a fast food place. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm thirsty. I, can, I, I need ice. And, well, my fridge already makes ice. You know, I want to see that movie come out. I don't need to, I don't need to go to the DVD store and, and wait in line. I can just click on it and I can upload it onto my phone. You know, uh, we serve in a, a place that has TVs where you have on-demand stuff. And you miss something, you can plug it on-demand. Or you can record it to watch on your own timing. And yet God often doesn't work on our timing. And even as God promised to bless Abraham and bless his, bless his nation, make him a nation and bless his descendants, there was a struggle involved. You know, Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, in this world there will be a struggle. Sometimes you don't understand I mentioned last week uh, Tyler Trent. He was a 20-year-old kid that died of cancer. and He kind of took the world by storm. He was a fan of, of Purdue. And, and uh, I watched a whole bunch of interviews with some of the sportscasters and stuff that, that met with him. And, and every one of them just talked about his, his, how positive he was and how, how self-sacrificing he was. And, and so I was watching the, the funeral. And, and this is the, I wanted to show you a video. This is the, the, the quarterback of the Purdue team. Um, who became good friends with Tyler. So let's watch this short video. My name is David Blau, a member of the Purdue University football team and one of Tyler's co-captains. Um, <laughs> and that's the truth. Mr. and Mrs. Trent, thank you for allowing me to stand up here and share this evening as we celebrate Tyler's grace-filled life. The 48 hours I got to spend uh, with the Trent family as a part of Tyler's entourage, like everybody else has mentioned at the College Football Awards show, was easily the best 48 hours of my life. Uh, we got to do some incredible things. I know, you know, with Ethan and Blake, it was all about flying on the private jet and um, staying at a pretty sweet hotel, and we even got to meet some of our favorite sports icons. However, what made, uh, what made the time I got to spend as an adopted member of the Trent family special was the conversations that were had, the relationships that were deepened, and the memories that we shared. And now I think that if Tyler and I had the opportunity to discuss what I was planning on sharing this evening, the conversation would be simple. He would want it to revolve around the five-letter word, the five-letter name that has stood the test of time. He'd want tonight to be all about Jesus. And as we reflect on our, our family member, our friend, our teammate, captain, 
a classmate, a cancer-fighting warrior. Most importantly, tonight we get to remember Tyler as a follower of Jesus. And it encouraged me to see Tyler in his element, cheering on his beloved Boilermakers. It inspired me uh, to see how he relentlessly advocated for cancer research. But his undeniable love for the Lord is what has impacted my life forever. Whether it was an encouraging text he sent with scripture or one of his favorite sermons, his willingness to share his powerful testimony or those three verses that he lived by in 1 Thessalonians, it was evident who he belonged to and who he lived for. Because in Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Tyler sent this verse to me twice via text and reflecting on it now, that's exactly what he was doing. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, staring it right in the face, and because of his hope and trust in Jesus Christ, he didn't lose hope. He was able to see the circumstances in front of him as an opportunity to serve others. And if that's not Christ-like, I don't know what is. So thank you, Tyler, for fighting the good fight, keeping the faith. Love you, brother. Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God has promised each of us if we put our faith and trust in Him, we will spend eternity with God in a place that has no pain, no sorrow, no shame, no hurt. We get so caught up in this present time. What I love about the story of Tyler is continually I, I heard of how loving and self-sacrificial and, and positive he was in the midst of this time. Everybody that interacted with him saw Jesus in the way that he lived. And may that be my story, that when people interact with me and spend time with me, they, they see Jesus. And so when we look at our circumstances, often it's easy to lose sight of God's promises because of what's happening right now. But ultimately, we have a, a bigger promise. We have a greater end. So whatever is happening now, we know that if we put our faith and trust in Christ, that we will spend eternity with Him. But even in the midst of that, God promised Abraham that in his good old age, he would die in peace. So God was still promising something. But one little side note in verse 16, it said that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. And one of the hardest things to wrestle with in the Old Testament is when the nation of Israel took uh, back over Canaan. When they took their land, uh, they eliminated the Canaanites. And, and we wonder, okay, how can a good and holy... God allow that? Well, the reality is that God was patient with the Amorites and wasn't going to judge them until their sin had come to full measure when they needed to be judging. So when the Israelites entered the land after the Exodus, it wasn't just God blessing the Israelites. It was also God enacting his holy justice on the Amorites. Let's go to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, to the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kezites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites, and the turn out the lights. Um, up until then, that last one was mine. Okay. Up until then, God hadn't entered into a covenant with Abram. God had made promises, but now God is using a theophany, a, a manifestation of himself revealed to come to this formal covenant. Walton, one of, the, one of my commentators, said that Mesopotamian rituals of this period featured a sacred torch and a censer in the initiation of rites, particularly nocturnal rites of purification. So purification was accomplished through the torch and the censer being moved alongside of someone or something. So what we see is that, that God often reveals himself in ways that people would understand. And so when Abraham saw this, this smoking fire pot pass through the middle and this torch, he would immediately know that that is, in, that, that is God revealing himself, perhaps as the purifier. In Exodus 3, God reveals himself as the burning bush. In Exodus 13, he reveals himself as a cloud of fire by night, leading the Israelites out. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4, the mountain burns with fire, symbolizing God's holiness. But you remember a few minutes ago when I talked about how they'd, they'd put the, the, split the animals, cut the animals in half, put them on either side, and both parties would walk through to symbolize if I break this covenant, this will happen to, to me. And then oftentimes it was the conquering king who would come in and, and force the, the person who is now under his rule to go through. Who walked through the carcasses? Did Abraham? Was it God and Abraham? No. God went through. What God was communicating when he traveled through that is that this is an unconditional, unilateral covenant that I am making with you. It's not based on your effort. It's not based on your work. It's not dependent on you. I am making a covenant today with you and I am going to fulfill it. I am committing to it. So when Abraham failed and at times again lied about his wife, God was still going to be faithful to the covenant. I'm so thankful I serve a God who is the one who goes through because if his covenant and his blessing and his promise was dependent on me, I would have failed a long time ago. I'm so thankful I serve a God that did all the work. That I serve a God that knew that I couldn't earn my way to heaven, so he came down here to earth and died in my place. So we look at the story, how do we, how do we take it and say, okay, this is important, how do I apply this to my life? The first thing to realize is that faith is primary. Faith is primary. It's what comes first. We're saved by faith. And that faith is something that, that needs to be a significant faith. It's not just, yeah, I, I agree. I intellectually assent to this thing. You know, James said even the demons believe in God and shudder. So just believing that he's there isn't really faith. Faith is putting my trust and my hope and, and surrendering to him as Lord. And then remembering that God is faithful. God is the one who, who walked through this, this covenant 
procedure. God is the one who sent His Son to die for us. God has made His promises, and some of us will realize some of the promises here on earth, and others we, we long for the time when they'll ultimately be fulfilled at our death, when we get to see God face to face and experience blessing. But God in Hebrews 12 is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that created our faith. He's the one that perfects it. And so we put, it, we put our trust in Him. He's the one that has done all the work. And then once we put our faith and trust in Him and follow Him, He's the one who continues to work in us. And ultimately, eternally, we will be made perfect when we die. It's so easy to read a story in the Scriptures and just go, wow, that was an interesting story. When we look at life of Abraham, we realize... That the most important thing that was said about him is he believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So don't miss that. Don't lose the opportunity to believe. Today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, don't put it off another day. You need to have that righteousness that only he can credit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for these stories that help us learn about your character. As you pass through this covenant procedure you committed that you are faithful that you will be victorious and god i'm reminded of how you encourage abram to look up at the stars and god help us not to look around at all the obstacles and circumstances we have but instead to look up to you to trust your promises that you are faithful And to know that you've promised that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So today, God, we we make that prayer. God, we draw near to you. We we ask for you to deepen our relationship with you. Give us an increased trust in you. Help us to follow you with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.